Uh, we find now that we are on the seventh uh, message within our sermon series of uh, eight messages entitled Unrepentant uh, Rebellion. And the idea behind this series is simply that Western Christianity has become soft, it has become mushy, and mild. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes of Jesus, he, Jesus, was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. We cannot put Jesus in those terms. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him, C.S. Lewis writes, he produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. So give us anything in 2018 but mild. Yes, the sin of the Sanhedrin, who were the religious leaders of Jesus' time, was that they hated Jesus, and so they put him to death. They had the motive, they had the opportunity, and they carried it out. The sin of the medieval church was that it invoked a terrifying Jesus upon people. And the sin of the modern era is that we have created a mild Jesus who is too polite to ask us to change who we are. But if we embrace the Jesus of the Gospels and the everlasting true message of the Word of God, we know that the preaching ministry of Jesus is all about that change of leaving the old life and embracing the new. Yes? But as we shall see, as we move in today's Scripture, the repentant thief upon the cross well, he adored Jesus. And so throughout this series, I have offered for us a succession of scriptures to show that soft belief in Christ is dangerous. It is very dangerous, for it was the soft, mild church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 that Jesus spat out from his mouth. Listen to the text from Revelation 3. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, Laodicean church, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I shall come in and eat with that person and they with me. The Laodicean church, Revelation chapter 3. It was also the soft German Protestant church of the 1930s and the 1940s that Hitler had in his back hip pocket, orchestrating and organizing the structure of the church because they chose the path of least resistance. They chose the soft, mild option, and it was dangerous. But soft and mild within our culture means that we have now eviscerated the moral center or God out from our culture so that we can no longer tell what is right and what is wrong. Allow me to explain. I was behind a uh, car uh, last month and it had, um, you've seen them, one of those um, Darwin fish. Yes, that is the, um, the fish, which is one of the symbols used by ancient Christians. Well, um, the, the Darwinian corruption of that ancient Christian symbol is, is, to put, is to put feet on it. And anytime you see that on the back of somebody's car, you know that individual more than likely is an atheist. So they had that on the back of, of their car. Perhaps you have seen them. But also on the back of their car, they had a bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker said, do good. Hmm. But hardcore Darwinism is anti-theistic, right? Life comes from the primordial soup, not from God. Darwinism is devoid of God. And the last time that I checked, amoebas and protozoa are not the source of our moral conscience. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. God is the source of our conscience. The God of the cross has now been replaced with a God of public opinion and with that hellish thought that everyone is right or worse that all opinions are equally correct. And the argument from Scripture is no. Not all opinions are created equal. Not all human values are meaningful or even eternal. There are a lot of human values that are not eternal at all. They will dry up and blow away. In fact, some values like the rich man had, they will land us in hell because they are the antithesis of the values of the kingdom of God. And the contention of Scripture is that all religions, all opinions, all science, all governments must bend, if not now, but in the end, the knee before the cross of Christ. This is what we call in Scripture the cosmic Christ. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Acts chapter 2 and verse 12 says, excuse me, Acts chapter 4 verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. 
For there is no other name given under heaven or earth by which men and women should be saved. And if we do not bend the knee to the Lord, it is a sign that we are unrepentant and that we are rebellious. And our unrepentant ways, well, they do carry consequences for us. That is, there is an eroding rather than an evolving trajectory for humanity. If all that we believe in or believe ourselves to be are advanced apes, Now, I believe myself to be a lot of things, but I do not believe myself to be an advanced ape. No, thank you very much. And these consequences are apparent in the two scriptures that are before us today. Each features two conversations, if you will. There's the conversation uh, that the rich man has with Father Abraham, and then there is the conversation that the thief on the cross has with Jesus. And each features how our decision-making in where, the here and now, and how we choose to relate to God has consequences for us and our loved ones for all eternity. Each of these two conversations has a sense of finality to them, and each passage turns on the word remember. So please join with me in a prayer this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the parable of the rich man. And we thank you, Lord, for all that we can learn from it. We thank you, Lord, for the poor man that was received to Abraham's bosom. And we thank you, Lord, for that conversation you had with the thief upon the cross and all that we can learn from that. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, to... Take a hold of your word today and allow it to change us so that we might have a fresh appreciation, Lord, of both heaven and of hell. We ask this in your precious name, the name of Jesus. Amen. So what went wrong with us that Jesus insists that a place of eternal torment awaits those who reject him? Let's uh, look first at the parable of Dives, as he's traditionally called. He's the rich man, and Lazarus. And the name Lazarus means God helps in Luke chapter 16. Well, the greatest sin of Dives is that he, as I shared with the children this morning, he failed to see Lazarus. Things that God put right in his path. Things that God puts right in our path, which are usually a need, But he was so preoccupied with himself that he failed to see the need. Now, in last week's scripture about the man born blind from birth, Jesus says this, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What are we blind to? And Jesus said, If you are blind... You would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This passage begs the whole question of what spiritual blindness is. And today's text from Luke's Gospel gives us the answer. It's when we fail to see God in the needs of others. I'm reminded of uh, Martin Niemöller. He was a... um, prominent Protestant pastor uh, who emerged as an outspoken public foe 
of Adolf Hitler, and he spent the last seven uh, years of Nazi rule in concentration camps. And uh, Niemöller is perhaps best remembered for his famous but short poem entitled First They Came. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, for I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Next they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Spiritual blindness is when we ignore the work of God in our life to such an extent that our hearts grow cold, insensitive, indifferent, and we become inhuman. We ignore the needs of others that we see around us. The judgment is this. God puts need right in front of our face, and we choose. It's a choice like Dives, not to respond, not to see. Or perhaps we have excuses. Dives had plenty of them. He was a rich man. He had finances to manage. He had a busy house to run. He had the affairs of his peers to attend to. Yeah, right, blah, 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 blah. One excuse after another. But God is found outside of all of our excuses and rationalizations for why we choose to ignore him? If scripture is clear about any one thing from the Old Testament all the way through the New, it's that God does not exist in our excuses or our preoccupations, the busy things that distract us from God. The judgment is, if we fail to see God, God will fail to see us. Ask the repentant criminal hanging upon the cross in Luke chapter 23. Because he saw God, God saw him. Now, Dives and Lazarus, you can uh, only go on for so long like this, ignoring others, and then death comes, and our ability to make excuses is finally irrevocably taken away from us. The time for penitence passes. <clears throat> Dives, the rich man, and Lazarus, the poor man, they have kind of a, a role reversal. You see, Lazarus, well, he could hardly get a crumb off of this rich man. And now Dives in hell, he can hardly, he doesn't even get a drop of cool water to, to cool off his fiery tongue. Further, Jesus teaches that there exists between Dives, the rich man, and Lazarus a huge gap. It is a gulf. It is a distance too wide to bridge. We humans like to believe that there is no distance that is too hard or difficult for us to bridge, but there is. There is this chasm, yes? It's called that within the Greek language, the chasm. And the origins of that word chasm come from the word yawn. Are you with me, my friends? So there's a metaphor in that. 
Some people spend their lives yawning. When we open our mouths and yawn, there is this gap, there is this chasm, and some people spend, oh God, God again? That's the kind of idea. What created the chasm? Dives walked over the need every day. But more than that, he began to treat every day as if it were commonplace. And that's what created the blindness. He suffered from the cataract of sameness. There it is. There's that need. And he saw it every day so many times that he just put it completely out of his life. Every day was the same as every other, and as a result, his heart became calloused and cold and desensitized to the needs that were right before him. And what Scripture teaches us is that every step, every decision, that is, forms our eternal destiny. We hear from the Old Testament book of Job. But he knows the way that I take when he has tested me, I will come forth. As gold. It's that refinement, yes, that was spoken of uh, to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my own daily bread. So fast forward with me now to Jesus' crucifixion found. In Luke chapter 23, you see the cross is an act of utter finality. Once you end up on the cross, there is no going back. There is no second chances. Your fate is sealed. The criminals were tried and their judgment was conclusive and only death awaited them. But there is an important word that links these two passages in Luke together from chapter 16 and chapter 23. And that word is this, remember. We go back to Luke chapter 16, but Abraham replied to Dives the rich man, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received all the good stuff, while Lazarus received all the bad things. But now he's comforted and you are in agony. What did Abraham force Dives to do as his basis for judgment? Remember. Abraham forced him to face his memories of every time he ignored a need. At the judgment, God will ask each of us, self-included, to remember. Remember. Remember, and and what this word means, it's in the middle voice in the Greek, and what that means is you're speaking to yourself. You are reminding yourself of all those times where the need was ignored. If you'd like a practical application of this kind of remembrance, just think about the courtroom drama of Dr. Larry Nasser, who abused all of those athletes, yes, in the, in the uh, United States Gymnastic Association and all of those Olympic athletes, yeah? And when we saw that courtroom drama enacted out on television, he had to sit there and listen to all of his accusers, and they were saying this one 
soothing to Dr. Nasser. Remember. Remember your abuse of me. Remember how you tore my life apart. Remember, therein lies the judgment. But in Luke chapter 23, something unusual happens. Oh yeah, watch out for the unusual. And it stands in sharp contrast to the parable of Dives and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. You see... In Luke chapter 23, the gaping mouth of hell is closed shut. The thief, before the time of penitence passes, he owns his life and his mistakes when he did wrong, where he missed many of God's appearances in his life. And that moral voice of his own conscience that he lost when he became a criminal, that voice of the Holy Spirit that uh, told him right from wrong. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what we justly deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you know the text, you will be with me in paradise. As he owns his own sin, he is forgiven. And so Calvary gives to every person the chance to buy their freedom. One of the driving conclusions that emerges from both texts is what Mark Batterson in his book, Draw the Circle, calls counterfactual theory. What he means by this are all the what-ifs in life, yeah? What if Dives had paid attention to poor, suffering Lazarus? He would have avoided the torments of hell, yeah? The thief, you see, he was not going to wait for counterfactual theory, the what-ifs, to kick in. Oh, no, you see, he wasn't going to be a what-if, eternally separated from God. It might have been the 11th hour hanging on that cross next to Jesus, but he wasn't going to become a what-if, yeah? The lifeblood was draining from his body, but he was not going to become a what if the vultures were circling overhead, ready to pick the flesh from his bones, but he was not going to become a what if the sky was turning black over his head, but he was not going to become a what if. Rather, he decided to be the thief that that day entered paradise with Jesus holding his hand and guiding him through the gates. You see, he was the very last person that Jesus saved in Jesus' entire earthly ministry. He was the man of the 11th hour. He was the one that just got in because of his confession. Yeah. The freedom of Calvary we find is in the cross. And as we find our freedom in Calvary, we find paradise. But without 
the cross. Without the freedom of that forgiveness, we find, as Dives did, only eternal torment. And Easter, if it asks us to do any one thing, it is to choose which.